So those of you who are actually unusual will definitely like this episode. One of the things I'm going to tell you, which you may not even get why I'm saying it and why it's actually a fact, is that if you really care about diversity and you really want that to happen in society, you're never going to make it happen until you get rid of classism and you get rid of elitism. Now you may wonder, okay, why is she telling us this? So let me tell you a little story. And in fact, maybe I could tell you about childhood, the legal profession, a few different things. So as the name entails in this podcast, I am an attorney. I've actually been licensed for over a decade in two states, New York and Connecticut. And man, I could tell you so many things about the legal profession and trying to get involved in this field when you don't come from a legal dynasty and you have no money. So anyhow, I basically came from nothing in my childhood. Every woman in my family had kids fairly young, at least in her 20s. Pretty much there's a whole genealogy of people in my family getting married and having kids. Nobody in my family actually had gone to college until maybe later on. People in, no one actually in any of, any part of my family, including my extended family, my former in-laws, none of them had gone to law school. I'm not sure any of them had gone on to an advanced graduate level degree because we don't have any doctors, we don't have any PhDs. I don't even know of anybody in that family who has a master's degree that we even talk to. But that's a story for another day, family estrangement and the so-called Southern conflicts and feuds among Southern families. But anywho, I grew up with a father who was an alcoholic. He'd been in the military, but basically he was an emotionally abusive alcoholic who made our childhood a living hell. My mother was very smart. She was actually a junior marshal in high school, but decided not to go to college because she said, oh, you don't really need college and it's too expensive. My family can't afford it. She apparently wasn't interested in looking at financial aid. Nobody had really said, hey, you know what? You've got academic potential. You need to be going to college. Plus she saw my dad, probably met him in uniform or something. And you know how the uniform can be for some ladies. You know, some ladies see the men in uniform and they just melt right there. It's like, okay, that's it. I got to have me that man. I got to chase him. So, yeah, apparently that's what happened with my mom. She would probably tell you something different. Maybe it's a little different from her details, but essentially that's how I see it. She wasn't really worried about trying to pursue an education. They didn't really emphasize academics and so forth in her family. I grew up in this atmosphere, didn't have anybody motivating me too much academically except me. I basically view my childhood as a cautionary tale. And I think some other people who grow up in that environment or something worse probably also view their their childhoods as, oh God, I don't want to end up like this someday. So I worked my butt off academically. I was one of those kids that was on honor roll every semester. I fought to get into National Honor Society in high school. In fact, I had to go through a fight against a sexist gym teacher just to be considered the next semester to even be invited to apply for National Honor Society. It's another separate episode, I think, but basically it's one of those, this is why people thought I was a lawyer long before I went to law school type stories. But anyway, I was doing all these things to advocate for myself. I sort of battled my way a very long time. In fact, when I was in college, there was a point where I didn't have money to even have textbooks and I had to go and finagle around to try to get that. And specifically, I had to deal with a notion that, oh, your your skin is as pale as a ghost, so therefore you have no actual need for financial aid. 
And I think because I never carried myself as a poor person, I didn't really embody white trash, even though my family lived in a trailer park. I didn't really speak like someone who was uneducated. I didn't use the phrase y'all. In fact, I phased that out of my vocabulary when I was a little kid. And I never wanted to be seen as ignorant or, I don't know, just all about religion and wanting to go get married and pop out babies the second I could. I just wasn't something I wanted to do. A lot of women in my family did that. In fact, that's pretty much the story of everyone else in my family except me. I was like, I want to go get an education. I want to go do a professional job. In fact, I even thought at first I want to be a doctor. Then I was like, no, I want to do pharmacy. And I actually took the pre-pharmacy major in college. And then I was like, okay, I don't think this is fitting because I barely passed applied calculus and I failed general chemistry labs. So it was like, okay, time to switch majors. I don't want the past year and a half of study I've done to be a total waste of my time. So let's see. Hmm. I'm interested in communications and psychology. And I actually ended up taking psychology because I'd already taken the science prerequisite, which at that time was biology. So I'd already taken biology, I did okay at that, and the only math you had to take for that one was statistics, which I was an ace at. So anyhow, I did that, went on to try to apply to law school, and I basically encountered the whole, why do you people not believe I don't have money conundrum? Nobody seemed to think that, yes, I don't get an allowance from my parents. I have to work and earn my own money. I don't get to drive around in a fancy car. I don't have money to pay tuition out of my dime. Most of my aid going to my undergraduate university, which was this small liberal arts school in Atlanta, was a need-based grant. And in fact, I chose that school as opposed to UNC Chapel Hill, where I also got accepted for undergrad because UNC Chapel Hill demanded me to come up with $10,000 that I didn't have. They required you to take a separate SAT test called the SAT2, which I don't know that they still have this today, but they also required you to do that. When I went to the campuses and looked at the rooms, they said, oh, maybe you'll get air conditioning in your room as a freshman if you go to Chapel Hill. Meanwhile, the other school I went to had internet hookups for each person in the room. They had people come and clean your bathroom once a week. There was no question about getting air conditioning in any of the dorms. I didn't have to take that blasted SAT2 test. So academically, they were actually on par with one another. But of course, Chapel Hill has the big name. And my mom was like, I think you would do better at a smaller school where they're not obsessed with sports, which I was never a sports person at all. In fact, to this day, I'm really not a sports person. You do not want me on your team for the most part. I was halfway decent at volleyball. I can swim, you know, I can sing, things like that. But yeah, more my skill is more in the brain set. It's more in the creative stuff. I'm not the woman you ask to do manual labor or play football or something, okay? You don't ask me to play basketball. I'm not good at that. So anyway, I remember going through a massive battle in terms of, yeah, I actually do need financial aid. When I went to apply for law school, I initially applied for an LSEC fee waiver and they rejected me and I had to say, okay, just because my family is not eating out of garbage cans and living in a cardboard box doesn't mean they've got millions of dollars. They're sitting here in this trailer that's falling apart. They're sitting here not having money to pay bills. I'm not getting a financial allowance from anyone. I had a work study job that I was even allowed to keep my income from. I also had another job and in fact, my senior year of college, I had three jobs. So it's like, yeah, I have to kind of take care of myself here. I don't have anybody to hand me stuff. 
I don't have some sugar daddy to finance me. I didn't even have a relative who was a credit worthy co-signer to co-sign on loans for me. So that was another big problem when I came to law school. In fact, when I got there my first semester, I had a scholarship where you had to be in the top 50%. And literally law school is a big fat grade competition. And one of the things that they don't tell you is half the key to passing law school is basically having enough money to buy study aids and buy bar review courses. So there were people who had the money to go and pay for bar review prep, and they also had money to pay for Barbary's law school study courses. So there were people who had money to do this stuff. Meanwhile, I'm somebody who's moved from my job and my life in Atlanta all the way to Connecticut, had no way to transfer my job, had no way of getting my own job during that time because they don't let you work in your first year of law school, especially they don't like you to have a job if you're gonna be a full-time 1L. So I literally was like, okay, how in the world am I going to pay for law school? And I remember when I lost the scholarship because I was literally one rank away from keeping that scholarship, I had to figure out how was I going to stay? And I was to a point, honestly, where if I had not been able to find my now ex-husband to co-sign for me on a loan, I was going to have to work as a stripper and live in my car in order to pay tuition. And the reason I was going to do that was there was no freaking way in hell that I was going to have something that I earned on my merits academically be taken away from me because I wasn't born to money. See, I felt like my life should not end up like the Reba McIntyre song, Fancy, or that I should have to go become a drug dealer or a stripper in order to stay in law school. And actually, that's another big problem in terms of trying to do the legal industry and kind of doing that profession in general. I'll have to kind of break that down for you guys, but that's a little bit of sort of the stuff I had to deal with. I discovered even when you are studying for the bar and you are applying to become, an, become a lawyer, which is not just pass the bar, it's you have to go through a character and fitness committee. It's basically a classist process. And if you don't believe me in terms of this whole classist process, in terms of law school, becoming a lawyer, all this stuff, I remember when I went to a tour of Columbia University and the admissions guy said to me, oh, you shouldn't go to law school unless you have enough money to do that. And all these law school manuals kind of said the same thing. The ABA also said this. And it's like, okay, if I waited until I had enough money to go to law school, I'd never be able to go. In fact, my parents had so little money, I wouldn't even be able to go to community college. In fact, the year after I started going to my school, my sister applied for, got accepted to community college, and had to leave because my parents could not pay the tuition that the school thought that they could afford. So my sister literally had to drop out of school because of finances and not being able to afford it. So further to my point about the legal industry and kind of how that works, I can't really speak for other fields and any of that stuff, but basically the way it works to get some of these law firm jobs you hear about where lawyers make a lot of money is you have to trade 140K a year for your soul. Now to get the 140K a year for your soul job, you have to worry about going to the top law school. You have to be on law review. You have to have a high GPA. Except getting the high GPA is based on the curve and how everyone else around you does. Then you have to worry about your fellow curve members having enough money to buy study guides, get tutoring prep, all this good stuff. And if you can't afford it, well, you're SOL. And maybe you can't grasp it as easily. And you know what? Maybe you're not the best person to try to do that all by yourself. But nobody's going to give you any kind of hand up. Nobody's giving you a free resource to do that. And then I remember when I had attempted to apply 
for the bar, they basically hold any kind of credit history, any kind of debt you have against you. So if you're a poor person, you're having to live off credit cards in order to survive, they don't give a shit. They don't care if you spent thousands of dollars to go to Aruba or if you were spending that money to put a roof over your head and buy food. And they don't care if your parents have no money. Their attitude is, oh, you have debt. That's a cardinal sin. Never mind the fact that I didn't even have a traffic ticket on my record. I had no criminal history. I had no unpaid child support. I had none of that. But they wanted to harp on me and give me attitude about unpaid credit card debt that I'd managed to pay minimums on throughout college. And then got harangued and hassled because I didn't have a bunch of money to go pay these things off. So you know what? They, when you look at statistics, it says a lot of people who fit in the poor category are, guess what? People of color. Minorities, right? And there's a lot of people who immigrate to this country. And guess what? They're minorities. A lot of those people didn't start here with a crap ton of money. They don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars, can't buy their kids the best study aids and pay off their credit card debt and hand them allowances and so forth. So... Basically, these firms won't even bother talking to someone if they didn't go to a T1 law school and they don't have they don't have this perfect record to get these high grades or be on law review, which is all about grades. Doesn't matter about anything else, what your circumstances are, if you had kids at home, any of that. So to me, it is laughable when I see some of these businesses and especially legal ads, I've still seen some of them now, where you could have, they want you to have, say, five years of experience, five years of being an attorney. We've gone out in the world, you've done professional tasks in the legal field, where you've represented clients, perhaps, or you've looked over contracts and you've done legal analysis for someone. They ignore the experience part and then say, must have excellent academic credentials and have graduated from a top law school. So basically, it's like saying, you're going to put out a PR statement saying, oh, we care about diversity and we want that to be an initiative. But then in order to work at the firm, you insist that they go to a T1 law school and have excellent academic credentials when they've been practicing for five years, maybe even 10 years. I've seen ads that required a bunch of experience and they give a flip about where you went to law school and what was your law school GPA? What was your class rank? Oh yes, because 10 years later, that really makes such a freaking difference as to your effectiveness as counsel. Like that's actually relevant to your ability to lawyer. And let me tell you something, it is not. I actually worked as a certified legal intern when I was in law school and I was dealing with family law. I took the family law class and ended up getting, I think it was a C. I don't know if it was a C or a C minus, but I think I ended up getting a C in family law. Yet I was doing family law cases that we were winning motions on. In fact, I even wrote a motion, argued this in a family court case in Connecticut in Superior Court. And our client ended up winning that motion. And we were doing this paperwork and we had professors who were like, good job, you're doing this well. So you know what? The grades you get in law school have nothing to do with your ability to practice in real life. It really doesn't. Even when you take the bar exam and getting your grades and all that, you don't use a lot of that in the real world of lawyering. One of the best places where you do use things in the real world of lawyering is actually doing a legal internship or working at a legal clinic like I did, or going out in the community and working on some kind of endeavor to help people. In fact, I will never forget that there is an indie film clinic in New York that had started up when I had started with my film company. This was like a few years after I started doing that. 
And I think at that time I had been working with that film company for about four years. So I asked them whether they were more concerned about pedigree or if they were more concerned about somebody's practical experience. Because I was here at this film company, was building my database and my contacts in terms of creative clients and having people who trusted me. And, you know, were more likely to listen to me, take guidance from me, and kind of had trust with me, which is essential if you want to be an attorney who effectively has clients and does a good job at it. And they said, oh, send a resume. Oh, we'll look at that. And did you know something? They seemed way too obsessed with where I went to law school and never contacted me at all. To this day, never heard anything back from them about that at all. There's also another organization called Volunteer Lawyer Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, and the Yelp reviews I read on that organization were appalling. Basically, people had said, oh, these people are more concerned about getting billable hours for some big law firm rather than being concerned about the clientele that walks in. And, you know, that straight up disgusted me. I'm like, you know what? I would never recommend somebody go to some of these places. I would recommend individual lawyers that I know. People who might be willing to cut them a break, who might discuss with them, somebody who specializes in dealing with that client population. I sure as hell would not refer them to some of these legal clinics where the only people they staff as volunteers are people from these elitist law firms who are known for having no personality. This is something I find even funnier, in fact, is that some of these places, these law firms will complain about, oh, the lawyers are such jerks to our support staff. Oh, they're jerks to clients and we want them to be nice people. And it's like, you want them to be nice people, but you want to recruit them from the same old elitist hell pits that you keep using and you hold up like everybody from there is Jesus or something. And a lot of, another big thing I should tell you about law school is that it's kind of bred to give people the idea that they're God because they're going to law school. I, on the other hand, have never thought I was God because of going to law school or getting law licenses or doing the things that I've done in career. I can't really stand people who kind of have that attitude. And I have seen the legal elitism and my God, you would not even believe it. You would be disgusted, you'd be appalled, you'd be like, oh my God, why the hell does this person have clients and why are they trying to work in entertainment law? And in fact, I hear so many complaints from people I know in entertainment who will tell me, oh my God, they'll talk about how much they dislike lawyers and they tend to forget I'm a lawyer because I just don't like lawyers myself either. It's like, your gripes about them are probably not even close to my gripes about them. I've got even more and I was there and I saw it, you know? You only saw a glimpse of it. I've seen like the entire onion unpeeled, you know? You've only seen that top layer. I've seen all the layers, dude. So I don't know how it works in other industries, but definitely for the legal field, I'm like, okay, stop demanding people be from T1 law schools or top law schools, great academic credentials if it's not some entry-level job. If you're requiring somebody to have at least a year of experience, you need to get the hell over that and you need to look at somebody's actual skill set, their actual experience. And especially if they've been doing it for more than that time, it's like, what the hell's wrong with you? And supposedly you're about diversity. Well, you're sure as hell not getting diversity when you're looking at everybody from the top law schools and law review and all this, because a lot of these people are kind of sheltered from the real world. Some of these people are part of legal dynasties and have never dealt with a true crisis. These are the people that I would never put in a million years in legal aid or some kind of clinic to help someone because they tend to patronize and be complete assholes to people like my sister or people like my mother who might go to one of these places and want to get help but then don't feel comfortable talking to that lawyer because they think he's nothing but an elitist douchebag.
So seriously, if you really want to fix diversity and you want to include that in the world, stop looking at people based on what school they went to and obsessing over this Ivy League bullshit. The Operation Varsity Blues already kind of showed us what bullshit it was if you didn't already know. And aside from that, it has nothing to do with your personality or your character. And if you think it does, I am happy to enlighten you otherwise.